0: Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. I don't know about y'all, but my kids are officially out of school for the holiday break, and that means the movie marathons have begun and pretty much won't stop until the new year. So in honor of that, we've pulled together a collection of our favorite movie-themed articles, some of which might even inspire you to seek out the originals for a rewatch. Either way, we hope you all have a wonderful holiday season, and we'll be back soon with more fresh and damn interesting stuff for you to enjoy. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And these were some damn interesting weeks.
1: First Link!
0: All right. So this next article from The Guardian is enigmatically titled They Came at Night. And it's about the recent discovery of a secret alternative version of the original Dracula movie from 1931. Ooh. So to understand why this alternate version of the film was made, we have to start with a little bit of film history. The first feature length talkie movie was The Jazz Singer in 1927. And studio executives immediately realized that this new technology presented a problem for international sales because in the old days they could just switch out Mm. the printed speech cards in between the shots. And so Mm -hmm. for the international release of the jazz singer, that's actually what they did. They just turned it back into a non-talkie by playing music Uh over the English dialogue and cutting in foreign language speech cards where there hadn't been any in the English version. But obviously, this was pretty unsatisfying, since the whole excitement was supposed to be that they were talkies. Yep. But Mm -hmm. for reasons that aren't really clear, nobody thought that dubbing in foreign dialogue over the English shots was a good idea. That just didn't occur to them, or maybe they didn't have the technology to edit that closely for some reason. But instead, they Hmm. said, you know what, we have the sets, we have the costumes, actors are pretty cheap. Why not just have an entirely second crew come in at night and film a shot-for-shot remake of the script in a foreign language as we go along? Yeah. And so they did that for quite a lot of movies. The secondary creations were called MLVs or multiple language versions. And for a while, they were extremely popular. The 1930 film Paramount on Parade had 13 different versions made simultaneously, (gasps) including Czech, French, Dutch, Hungarian, German, Italian, Japanese, Romanian, Polish, Serbian, Swedish, and Spanish, as well as, of course, English.
1: Wow. Yeah,
0: which, I mean, that's a huge undertaking to make 13 different films, but really the same film at the same time. Right. Ultimately, MLVs fell out of favor, largely because the crews and actors weren't as experienced and the foreign versions ended up looking like cheap knockoffs. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of these countries had thriving film industries back in their home countries, but there weren't necessarily a lot of actors living in L.A. who spoke Serbian or a lot of directors who could communicate with them. So they had to kind of make do with what they had. And the end result just wasn't that impressive. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the only exception to this rule was the Spanish version of Dracula. It was directed by George Melford, who got the gig because he could supposedly speak Spanish. But all the actors later reported that he couldn't. He had just hired a translator (laughs) to stand there next to him and tell the actors what he said. Melford had made a few movies previously, and basically it seems that he felt like getting to make the Spanish version of a big budget hit like Dracula would be better for his career than making whatever small-time English film he might be given next. So he Mm -hmm. bluffed his way in, basically. And Mm -hmm. when the MLV process fell out of favor, a lot of these old film prints were recycled for their silver content. And Melford's version had been assumed lost since the 1950s. But then in the early 90s, a copy was found in a film archive (gasps) in Cuba. What? Yeah. And of course, our relationship with Cuba was and still is a contentious thing. And it took four separate meetings to negotiate a temporary loan of the film with members of the UCLA Film and Television Archive flying out in person to convince the Cuban authorities to let them have it for just a little while. Wow. Ultimately, they did get it. And as of 2015, Melford's film is stored in the Library of Congress. But the film archivists were obviously much too young to have seen it when it came out themselves, and they were shocked at what they found when they finally got to see it. Melford's version of the film is 29 minutes longer with added Ooh. dialogue that was never in the English version, as well as completely different costuming, different characterizations, and arguably they say better cinematography. Wow! Ooh! Bella Lugosi's Dracula was really creepy and menacing, but the Melford Dracula, who is played by Carlos Villarias, is more debonair and chivalrous, which they say makes his evil side that much more disturbing. It's also Ooh. quite a bit saucier, with the heroine in these really low-cut dresses that American audiences at the time would have been shocked by. And from a modern perspective, they say Melford's version looks a lot more like where the vampire aesthetic ultimately ended up being today as opposed to the Bella Lugosi version, which obviously looks pretty outdated right now. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes me curious enough to want to see it. I don't speak Spanish well enough, but I could, you know, hopefully get it subtitled maybe.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's got to be a fan sub floating around the Internet somewhere. Yeah, I
0: mean, once it's in the Library of Congress, you can make, you know, upload it to YouTube and get going. Like, it shouldn't be that hard. (laughs) And the fascinating thing is they seem to have started to revive this MLV technique today, which I know because a while back I stumbled upon a Spanish version of Breaking Bad on Netflix, which was a literal shot for shot remake with the same set, same everything, but different actors. And I don't, yeah, it was there. And I was like, am I hallucinating? Like this is (laughs) Breaking Bad, but it's not. Like I said, it was shot for shot. They had all the sharp angles. They had everything,
1: but it was... I mean, the cinematography is one of the best things about that show. exactly. why why break it? Yeah,
0: (laughs) and I don't know if they made it at the same time or they went back and made it after the original was such a hit, but it's definitely out there. You should seek it out because it was trippy to watch it.
1: (laughs) It's called metastasis.
0: Oh, okay. There you go. He's found it already.
1: (laughs) 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 Next link. Next link. Next link. All right. Well, since the pandemic has been a thing and we're still in it, media, especially watching movies and things, has really been one of the lifelines for me. I'm sure it's been the same for most of you guys, too, right? Yeah. You got to
0: pretend that the world is sort of (laughs) normal.
1: That's right. Well, Gizmodo is reporting that a woman was hit with embezzlement charges for a 20-year-old overdue VHS tape rental. (laughs) I know that was quite the segue, but we're going to make it fit. So, you know, a lot of us may have, you know, be too young to remember. But yes, Gen Z's, this used to be a thing. And in 1999, an Oklahoman woman rented a VHS tape of the then hit sitcom, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, (laughs) and her failure to return it ended up branding her record with felony embezzlement charges what
0: wow i know
1: so the woman's name is karen mcbride and she now lives in texas and she didn't even realize this was a thing until she went to a local dmv to change her name on her driver's license after getting married She explained to a local news affiliate that she understandably did not even remember renting the movie in the first place. Quote, I mean, I didn't try to deceive anyone over Samantha, the teenage witch. I swear. She didn't even get the witch's name right. She didn't know the name (laughs) of it. (laughs) No. So court records shared with the news outlet showed the VHS tape was rented at a video rental spot in Norman, Oklahoma that's been closed since 2008. And according to the docket, that tape was, at the time, worth just under $60. Well,
0: yeah, because the theory was that Blockbuster was going to rent it out several times. So if you were buying the
1: video to rent it, it cost a lot more. Exactly right. So one of the arguably cruelest twists here is that she herself probably wasn't even the person that rented the video. As she explained to the TV news, the likely culprit was a man she was living with at the time and his two daughters. Ah. But meanwhile, over the past decades, she said that she was let go from several jobs with no reason given. Now she's putting the pieces together and thinks maybe that felony embezzlement charge might have had something to do with it. Yeah. (laughs) But there is a happy ending here. The Cleveland court where McBride's case was initially filed was ordered to drop the charges and expunge her record. So (laughs) thank goodness. So but how many other people, I mean, not returning
0: a tape to Blockbuster was kind of a semi-common thing. People would do it. So like how many other people are out there walking around with felony records? records that they don't even know about. (laughs) right? crime
1: lords of Blockbuster, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And how are they going to find out? Because she lived with this for years and had no idea that this was a thing. Yeah, no, if somebody runs a background
0: check on you and finds a felony embezzlement charge, they're not going to be like, hey, do you know about this? They're going to assume you know, (laughs) unless it was all a plot. And
1: she really did embezzle a lot of money. And now she's like, no, it was just one (laughs) tape, I swear. Yeah, she was running underground viewing rings of surely <gasps> what was maybe just a few episodes all of Sabrina right. because they're not all going to fit on a single VHS tape. That's right. Now, allegedly. <laughs> next link? Next, next link. link.
0: Well, I am unbelievably genuinely excited about this next article. It comes oh. from Esquire from Chris Nashawadi and it is a bit of a retrospective on the Jaws movie franchise. Nice. <gasps> yeah. I love the movie Jaws. I can't even count how many times I saw it as a kid. And more distinctly, (laughs) I also saw all of the sequels multiple
1: times. (laughs)
0: And unfortunately, a lot of what this article goes into is why those sequels are objectively terrible movies. Uh, But that didn't bother me as a child. I still loved them. And (laughs) uh, all of this has come up because June 20th of this year was the 45th anniversary of the original Jaws. It was the first summer blockbuster. Prior to that, summer movies were considered kind of a lull. It really wasn't Uh a given that kids went to the movies during the summer. Mm -hmm. And this was the first one that just blew it out of the water and made them start thinking, no, we should release our biggest movies in the summer. It made $470 million at the box office, which made it the highest grossing film of all time in 1975. Wow. So it was obviously a big success. They wanted to make a sequel almost right off the bat. But the first sequel was doomed from the start because Spielberg refused to direct it. He was already working on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and he was quoted as saying, making a sequel to anything is just a cheap carny trick. Now,
1: hey! it wow.
0: should be noted he changed his tune by the time they got to Indiana Jones. He did make sequels.
1: But... <laughs>
0: and then also Richard Dreyfuss, who played the scientist, he was also too famous now to bother with a sequel. And Robert Shaw, the actor who played Quint, died of a heart attack just a few years after the movie came out. So by the time they kind of had a script and were ready to do a sequel, only Roy Scheider was left. And the only reason that Scheider did the movie at all was because he had a three-picture deal with Universal Pictures And he didn't want to do it, but he was contractually obligated to. Dang. So they switched directors a month in, and basically the whole second movie was a complete rehash of the concept of the first movie. Except now there was this implication that the shark was actively going after teens, kind of like a slasher pick. Like it, it was very weird. But for me as a kid, I was like, yes, an evil shark. That sounds awesome. Uh, and it still made $208 million. It was the highest grossing sequel at the time until Rocky II came out. And then oh. they got to Jaws 3D, which, as the pun implies, was the third one. And it was in 3D. The article said they described Jaws 3D as a gimmick in search of a plot. There was sort of this resurgence Ooh. of 3D films in the late 80s. And they just were desperate to make anything 3D. There was a Freddy Krueger film that was 3D. They just said, anything that's coming out, we're going to make it 3D. And Uh this one actually is kind of close to my heart. I really like this one. (laughs) They (laughs) moved the setting from Amity Island to SeaWorld Orlando, which at the time, I don't know this for sure, but I am pretty sure that was a paid product placement, right? Because you couldn't use SeaWorld's name without their permission. And they actually filmed on the set of SeaWorld Orlando. That had to imply
1: some kind of, like, permission.
0: Right. But then at the same time, like, there's scenes in that movie where, like, you're in an underwater aquarium tunnel so you can look up and see all the fish above you, and the shark is literally attacking the tube and people are going (gasps) to drown. So, like, I don't know why SeaWorld thought that was a
1: good promotion to think you might die at our resort. Yeah, (laughs) Um, batter our brand. Here's uh, the money that we're going to require for
0: it. Yeah, but I mean, maybe they just figured out, you know, A, at the end, they get the shark and SeaWorld's very safe. So you can go, I don't know what they thought. But, um, (laughs) of course, nobody from the original was in Jaws 3D. The eldest Brody son was the main character. He was an adult now. He was played by Dennis Quaid. So, you know, they had some big names in it. (laughs) Uh, I should note, the article actually says Randy Quaid but I happen to know that's wrong. I went and looked it up oh. to be sure. It's Dennis Quaid. Huh. Um, which I think we can all agree is the more respectable of the Quaid brothers if you're going to yeah, put Yeah, but him in if your you're going
1: to pick, you know, a random Quaid to appear in a third gimmicky Jaws <laughs> right. sequel, I would have gone with Randy. That was, I think, a fair assumption to make, even if it was wrong.
0: Right. Well, and Quaid later justified his participation after the movie was a big flop. He said, oh, look, I was in the throes of cocaine addiction when I made that. So, <laughs> oh, oh, oh,
1: oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. the most 80s response ever ever i yeah.
0: love it and to be fair it also had leah thompson who was she played the mom in back to the future just two years yeah. earlier so i mean they apparently had enough clout to get some big names into it and even though it had terrible reviews it still grossed 87.9 million and it was profitable which huh. allowed for jaws 4 <laughs> oh uh.
1: no <laughs> now, wait how many are there
0: there's four just four okay and the great thing about four is I guarantee you, you know something about this movie, even if you've never seen it, because the final installment was called Jaws the Revenge, and the tagline was, this time it's personal.
1: (gasps) That's where that comes from? Yes, that was the movie. Wow.
0: And in this one, it truly is. They go back to the mother, Ellen Brody, who was the original actress. Her husband had died of a heart attack, and she claims that it was the fear of that damn shark that made his heart give out (laughs) after so many years. Then her younger son, who is now a cop, gets eaten by a shark. And in her grief, she goes to the Bahamas to hang out with her older son, who was the one who used to work at SeaWorld but is no longer played by Dennis Quaid. And the shark, (laughs) according to Jaws 4, follows her for 1,200 miles down to the Bahamas. Like, he, he <laughs> wow. swings after her because he's trying to get the last members of the Brody family.
1: <laughs> it is personal. Yeah,
0: and oh. believe it or not, they got star power for this one, too. Michael Caine is in Jaws 4, somehow. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he's the love interest. The main plot is basically, can this woman let go of her shark obsession long enough to find love again, you know? And... Uh,
1: <laughs> I love a good grounded story. I know,
0: it makes so much sense. (laughs) I really want to see this now. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's awful and I love it. (laughs) (laughs) The main purpose in this one, of course, again, was product placement. They were promoting the new Jaws ride at Universal Studios. Fun (laughs) side story, I've actually been on that ride before they disassembled it and moved on. It was one of those like on a track under the water rides where the boat Mm -hmm. just kind of goes through and you pass these animatronic scenes from the movie. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so at the very end of Jaws 1, the shark bites the oxygen tank and explodes. Spoiler alert. And <laughs> we were riding on the boat and the big fire explosion happens and the lady with the little microphone is just like, oh, no, um, hang on. And apparently our boat had come off the track and was <gasps> heading straight for the fire. And it just, <gasps> it just kept going. And she starts like making calls and hitting buttons. And they put the fire out eventually. And then we were stuck there for like an hour. But, <laughs> but I distinctly remember that ride, uh, and it was a decent ride.
1: Watch out for that heart attack in 15 years.
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, you know, most of the people who worked on Jaws 4 said they knew at the outset it was, as the director called it, a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. Mm. They noted in the article during one climactic scene, Michael Caine is pulled out of the water. The camera cuts away, and when it comes back, his shirt is bone dry. Uh, there's several scenes where you can see the animatronic rigging holding the shark up. Oh, oh. No. It has the dubious honor of having a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh. <laughs> wow. they, uh, they had some quotes from uh, Siskel and Ebert at the time. Gene Siskel said... When you see and hear the nasal Lorraine Gary on screen, you want the shark to eat her. And <laughs> Roger Ebert said, it is not simply a bad movie, but also a stupid and incompetent one. So, <laughs> not a lot of love for the Jaws franchise at the end. But believe it or not, it still made money. The budget was only $20 million, and it grossed $50 million. So, uh, you know, (laughs) when you start to question why do movie studios put out terrible movies, the answer is because we pay to see them. They make a lot of money off of them. We're asking for it. There was a great closing line. Michael Caine was asked at some point if he'd ever sat down and actually watched Jaws 4. And he said, no. However, I have seen the house that it built, meaning his own very expensive (laughs) house. So so apparently he doesn't feel bad about it. And uh, and neither should we. I think we should watch it without any shame.
1: (laughs) I'm sold. I'm ready to find
0: these. I'm telling you, start with three. In SeaWorld, watching people get attacked in like the Shamu shows, it's great. Like, (laughs) it's so good. (laughs) Next link.
1: Next Next link. link.
0: All right, this one comes from J Store. It's about the kind of the early history of film. It's a little bit of a pop culture retrospective, I suppose. There was a trend in the early 1900s where the film itself was very expensive. You know, people weren't making these 1-hour long narratives. They were sort of limited to like these 30-second to maybe 3-minute movies that they were able to make at a time. And so there was a fad of what are called trick films, and it was basically special effects showcases and they're kind of most often associated with this one director named Georges Méliès. He's the one who made the movie with the big moon that has a human face, and then there's a can stuck in the eye. Yes. So yeah, that's like one of his most famous, but this guy made so many films, and he was really, really into the idea of what kind of special effects can I do with this new medium? And unfortunately, what this article kind of goes into the history of is the idea that a lot of these special effects generally involved wacky things happening to working class women. Like that was kind of hmm. the joke of the day. (laughs) Um, And some of them were, you know, a little more harmless and some of them were pretty grotesque. So like the 1903 (laughs) British short Mary Jane's Mishap, this accident-prode maid is kind of trying to clean the fireplace and there's a little bit of slapstick where she gets herself all messy. And then she fills the fireplace with paraffin and accidentally explodes herself out of the chimney like a rocket. And then uh, uh, later she appears as a ghost hovering over her grave. And so they were showing off this oh, like, oh, well, we can make kind of a transparent woman on this film. And, oh and so, gosh. you know, she gets to be a ghost, I guess. But this was a really common thing. There's a shocking incident where the maid electrocutes herself. There's Nora's Fourth of July, which is pretty obviously more explosions. And the historian who's really gotten all into this is she's a cultural scholar named Maggie Hennefeld. And she said maids in these films were almost always Irish, because that fit the prejudices of the day. They were sort of making fun Mm -hmm. of these bumbling maids. Of course, these were all silent films, so the way they showed that they were Irish was through the dialogue printed on the screen. You know, they would give them these really overly aggressive, typed-out Irish accents. And she said (laughs) there's actually so many of these, you can categorize them into eight different categories. There's combustion. There's micrographia, which is like a person is really, really small next to somebody normal-sized, and they're sort of manipulating the distance there of the lens. There's dismemberment, where the limbs kind of come off and are doing their own thing, but you can't see the rest of the body. There's quick-change metamorphosis, gradual metamorphosis, tableau vivant, which is where women would sort of pose initially as paintings or statues and then spontaneously, you know, come to life and do funny antics. Uh, they had undercranking, which was sort of you crank the film slower than it's supposed to as you're recording so then when you play it back at full speed you get this absurd speeding up of various movements hmm. and of course slapstick corporeality which is just uh, slapstick <laughs> yeah. but she noted you know this is aside from the sort of general prejudice and bigotry of the day this also mirrored real risks that working-class women faced. she said they hmm. had crinoline skirts were the cheap alternative to the big, thick petticoat that the upper class wore. But the crinoline was highly flammable. And so it was actually really common for maids to be killed or injured because their skirts caught fire in the kitchen (gasps) as they were cooking. And so it gets really dark when you start thinking about like, oh yeah, they're laughing at real horrible accidents that happen to people, but instead they're blowing them out of the chimney like a cannonball. So, And of course, as the industry got a little more mature and they ended up being able to make longer films, then actual narratives came into it. But Mm. for the entire period that they were limited to these short things, they didn't do a whole lot of love stories. They didn't do a whole lot of drama. It really was just about this horrible thing happens to somebody. Ha ha ha.
1: <laughs> Basically, America's Funniest Home Videos, but scripted and in little short bursts of vignettes.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, okay, some, of them, okay. some of them are funny. I mean, you can watch them as long as you're ignorant of the fact that these are all happening to working class women of a particular <laughs> uh, nationality. In the idea of like, oh, look, she blew herself up. We still have stuff like that today. It's really just that the overtones at the time were definitely being picked up by the audience and that makes them a little less comfortable.
1: (laughs) Yeah, at least nowadays, for the most part, the people you blow up there's a rationale for why they deserve to be blown That's up. That's right. You have enough time. The, you to know, make a story. there's a narrative, at least. I don't know if we can call it rationale, but certainly a narrative. <laughs> <laughs> when you call it the bad
0: guys, they're the bad guys. You don't have to explain, yes, they have families and they are
1: going to. No them. nuance required. <laughs> right. Next link.
0: Next, Next link. link.
1: Well, life science would like you all to know that seals are making Star Wars noises at each other underwater, and we have no idea why. <laughs> well, they're excited for the movies.
0: <laughs> it's a very <laughs> complex marketing campaign.
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the franchise saturation is hitting new levels as they're hitting the ocean blue, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what scientists are hearing for the first time is that seals can chirp whistle and trill like droids. The article notes that above water, they sound like bellowing wookies, but below the ice, seals sound like chirping, chattering robots. So,
0: but they only make these noises underwater. Like we know what the noises they make above ground.
1: That's exactly right. Interesting. So Paul Sico, a visiting professor at the University of Oregon and lead author of a new study describing the bizarre seal sounds, said in a statement that the Weddell seals create an almost unbelievable otherworldly soundscape under the ice. It really sounds like you're in the middle of a space battle in Star Wars, laser beams (laughs) and all. Here's the catch. You would have to be an alien or a droid to hear them. All of those sci-fi sounds are totally inaudible to human ears. They had to use special microphones. They were able to detect these noises after two years of listening to Waddell Seals with a special hydrophone, which is a fancy word for an underwater microphone, (laughs) Mm -hmm. installed in Antarctica's McMurdo Sound in 2017. Now, before the researchers started recording, they knew about 34 seal calls that are audible to human ears. But now the team's research adds nine new types of ultrasonic calls to the seal's repertoire. These include trills, whistles, and alien-sounding chirps, sometimes even composed of multiple harmonized tones. So this is where we get a little bit auditory geek here. Humans hear in the sonic range of 20 to 20,000 hertz, but most of the newfound seal sounds exceeded 21,000 hertz, with mm. some even rising to 30,000. So one high-pitched whistle reached a shrieking 49.8 kilohertz. Wow. wow. Yep. Yeah. And when seals harmonized multiple tones, the resulting noise could exceed 200 kilohertz. And that's well beyond the hearing range of cats, dogs, and even some bats. And so what are these high-frequency communications about? We don't know yet. Uh, We had never even detected (laughs) ultrasonic vocalizations in seals, nor in any other fin-footed mammals like sea lions or walruses. But the researchers are speculating that they might just be bonus conversational elements to, quote, stand out over all the lower frequency noises, like changing to a different (laughs) channel for communicating. They're showing off is what they're saying. Right, right. We can make these sounds and you can't. Uh It could be singing, right? Maybe they've discovered their own version of seal new rock. Mm -hmm. Who who knows? Could be a fad, could be an evolutionary stepping stone. The article notes that it's theoretically possible that the noises are involved in echolocation, which is the biological sonar that animals like dolphins and bats use to find their way around dark places, but so far there is no evidence that seals use echolocation. They can dive more than one thousand nine hundred feet below water and hunt wow. in the darkness of Antarctic winter. So we'll keep listening in and maybe recruiting them because I know we've got another season of The Mandalorian coming out.
0: Yeah, I think we need to yeah. translate that real quick because they might be having whole like overthrow the, <laughs> the
1: population conversations that we don't know about. They're planning for a post-human society, and they yeah. you know purposefully chosen sounds <laughs> out of our range that we're just like, what is it? Maybe it's a conversation station blip who
0: knows we're like they're singing and they're like yeah that's what we're doing buddy
1: <laughs> we're gonna outlive you haha ha. Yeah. <laughs>
0: next link next,
1: next link.
0: link all right this next article is from smithsonianmag.com and it's called how 101 Dalmatians saved Disney and Ooh. there have been a number of versions but they are talking about the original animated movie from 1961 Basically, what it boils down to is that the animated movie used a new technology that saved Disney money at a time when they were really struggling financially, which is kind of hard now to picture a time when Disney wasn't doing well. But apparently it really wasn't in the early 60s. Mm. So the old way of doing animation was a multi-step process where first the artists would make sketches on regular paper. Then assistants would trace the outlines of those images onto a clear sheet of celluloid or a cell sheet. Then Mm -hmm. a painter would flip the cell sheet over and paint colors within the lines. So when you flipped it back over, the outlines would still be nice and crisp. So you basically have three people touching every image. And Disney films Mm -hmm. generally run between 12 and 24 cells per second. So a full length motion picture reaches up to a million drawings each, which amounts to a lot of labor costs. Yeah. But in the 1940s, a physicist named Chester Carlson invented a technology he called Xerox.
1: Ah. Yeah.
0: And with a little (laughs) refinement, they were able to adapt the process to celluloid, which meant they could take a picture of the paper sketch with a Xerox camera and print the image directly onto the cell sheet. So the artists and the painters at either end got to keep their jobs, but the assistants in the middle were not necessary anymore. And this was, you know, sad for the assistants, I'm sure, but it really was necessary because Disney's previous big release, Sleeping Beauty, had not paid off. It brought in five million dollars in ticket sales, or roughly 45 million today, but it had cost them six million to make. And in the Ooh. aftermath of that loss, Disney was talking about canceling upcoming projects and even closing its animation studio entirely. Whoa. What? So think about all the films we would not have gotten. Oh my gosh, wow. yeah. if it weren't for Xerox. But Ken Anderson, the art director for 101 Dalmatians, said, wait, 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 don't cancel us. What if we try this new Xerox technology instead to save money and just see how it goes? So they did, and it worked. They got the total budget down to $3.6 million, and the movie ended up grossing $14 million in theaters, which basically saved Disney and made them profitable again. Wow. But one of the drawbacks was that at the time, Xerox was still strictly black and white, or black, really. And if you look at Sleeping Beauty, for example, her blue dress is outlined with a complementary darker blue, while her yellow hair is lined with dark yellow, etc. The art style of 101 Dalmatians, by comparison, comes off as really stark, with these thick black outlines on everything. Plus, the ink technology wasn't entirely perfect either, so if you watch the movie, you can see that the outlines are all like a little flaky and jittery, kind of like a bad Xerox copy. Mm. And people noticed at the time, but Disney sort of played it off as this intentional, raw artistic choice to make Cruella de Vil seem more chaotic and menacing. Mm. But Walt Disney himself actually didn't like it. He was always more concerned with creating the best possible art without any real consideration for budgets. Mm -hmm. But most of the other animators preferred it because they felt like there had always been a certain amount of degradation when the less skilled assistants traced their drawings. And now what they had drawn was exactly what went into the movie. Plus, drawing 101 dogs in every scene was tedious and time-consuming. But with the Xerox technology, they were able to just draw three or four and then just copy them again and again, kind of staggering their movement so they all looked like they were moving independently. So They also saved money on the dogs. But <laughs> from that point on, Disney kept using the Xerox technology in all their feature films, all the way up to The Little Mermaid in 1989. Although by then they had figured out how to print with brown ink, so it appeared a little softer. The next film after that was 1991's Beauty and the Beast, which was the first Disney movie to use a computer animation system. Mm. And unfortunately, once computers got involved, Disney began going back and remastering all their old films for re-release, which means they cleaned up a lot of the original jitteriness and artifacts Mm. of the Xerox processing. So if you get the Blu-ray or whatever of 101 Dalmatians, you won't see what we're talking about unless you go back and find an old VHS or... Conveniently, you can just follow the YouTube link in the article where someone has uploaded the original. And it was interesting because I watched it with obviously like a modern animation sensibility. And I I liked it. It resonated with me because it's, it's a very common style today. Like the one yeah. thing I kept thinking of was that cartoon Dr. Cats, where the edges of all of the lines yes. were really deliberately jittery. And they made it. There was a name for it that I couldn't remember. Is um, that like rotoscoping? Something like that. Yeah, it was, it was like mm-hmm. they would use a particular technique to deliberately make everybody's outlines really, really shaky.
1: Yeah, it was almost like a TV static used for the outlines where it was like mm-hmm. jagged and constantly moving and kind of jittery, right? Yeah. So, you know, maybe
0: on some level you can say 101 Dalmatians inspired that. Uh, for them, it was just a money issue, but. <laughs> 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 All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.